0: Spend enough time at sea, and your eyes could start to play tricks on you. You might see phantom sea creatures in the distance, or even a mass of land floating above the water. The latter is called a Fata Morgana, and was named after Morgan Le Fay, the powerful sorceress from Arthurian legend. It was believed that her powers had caused fairy castles to sprout above the waves. Perhaps Morgan Le Fay was behind another mysterious ocean mass one that has confounded explorers and cartographers for hundreds of years. What was nothing more than a speck on a map became the legend that launched a thousand ships. One of those ships belonged to John Nesbitt. Nesbitt was a soldier. After fighting in the Thirty Years' War during the 17th century, he probably should have settled down with his wife and family back in Scotland. But Nesbit couldn't shake his sense of duty— He continued to serve in battles between 1666 and 1679, before being labeled an outlaw for his extreme religious views. However, while captaining his own ship one day in 1674, he noticed something in the water. His map showed it as nothing more than a tiny circle. An island. It had appeared on maps since the mid-14th century, yet no one had ever stepped foot on it before. On this day, John Nesbitt would be the first. He and his crew headed toward it. They dropped anchor once they'd gotten close enough and went out in rowboats to investigate. Once they came ashore, the men lit a fire and observed the local wildlife. Enormous black rabbits hopped around everywhere. There was also a large castle made of stone, its only occupant, a man believed to be a wizard. As they explored the island, the crew met another old man who had lived there for quite a long time. He gave them gold and silver to take back to their ship. When Nesbit told others back on land about his expedition, he was met with one of two reactions. Either laughter at his expense, or more questions than he had answers to. Another captain who heard Nesbit's stories decided to see for himself. He and his crew sailed to the island and, surprisingly, had the same experience. They saw the castle, the rabbits, and met the old man who bestowed them with gold and silver, just like Nesbit. After that, as sightings of the island shrunk, so would its appearance on nautical maps. No one saw it for 200 years. And then, in 1872, explorers Robert O'Flaherty and T.J. Westrop claimed to have spotted it from their ship. Westrop allegedly visited on his own three separate times before bringing his family along. On the voyage there, the Westrop said the island appeared and then disappeared without a trace. According to the legends, the island only appears once every seven years, when the fog that normally surrounds it lifts, allowing sailors to catch a glimpse. And the name of this mythical land? They called it Brazil. No, not that Brazil. It was also known as High Brazil, named for Brizal, the Celtic name for the High King of the World. Maps dating from 1325 all the way up to the 1800s positioned it about 200 miles off the coast of Ireland out in the Atlantic Ocean. There's a long history of mythology and folklore surrounding the island. Aside from the rabbits and the magician, it's been said that Brazil is also the Irish version of Mount Olympus, home to the gods of old. No one has seen it since, and you won't find it on any modern map. But some say it's still out there, waiting to be found. An island shrouded in mist, as well as mystery. When we die, we leave behind more than we realize. There are often grieving family members, perhaps a beloved pet now without its owner, and in far too many cases, we have debts that have gone unpaid. Most debts will be forgiven or collected by the banks through various means. Other debts, however, aren't waived so easily. They need more than a signature to dismiss them. These debts require a unique kind of payment. In the village of Rattling Hope, England, Richard Munslow made himself a reputation for collecting those debts. He was unlike a lot of folks in his trade, which favored the poor. He was far from it, in fact, having been born to a wealthy family, and his farm was quite successful. But Munslow loved his neighbors and wanted to do something for them at one of the saddest points in their lives. So whenever one of them died, Munslow would venture to the graveyard and eat over the body. You see, a person who died suddenly didn't have the time to confess their sins to a priest or to God, thus leaving their souls impure. An impure soul was unable to move on to heaven. However, there was a way for the soul to be cleansed after the fact. It was believed that consuming a meal over the dead would absolve them of their sins, which would then pass on to the sin-eater instead, allowing the soul to move on. The practice of sin-eating had existed for thousands of years in various forms. In early Mesoamerica, a dying person could confess their sins to the Aztec goddess of fertility and motherhood, who would consume them and purify the soul. That specific term, though, sin-eater, originated in Wales. As a practice, it gained popularity in specific parts of England throughout the 15th century, all the way up until the 1800s. Aside from helping the dead move on, The act of eating one's sins would also prevent restless spirits from tormenting the living, which was a good benefit, if you ask me. Sin-eating was originally a paid job performed by the poor. No one of any wealth or status would take on the sins of others, which brought with it the stigma of being a pawn to the devil himself. Sin-eaters were thought to be blasphemers and practitioners of black magic. They also became targets for the Catholic Church, who had cornered the market on absolution, Anyone caught practicing sin-eating could be sentenced to death. The same was true for folks who hired sin-eaters in the first place, as they had gone against God's will. But Munslow didn't mind any of that. He tended to his farm and occasionally stopped by the graveyard to break bread with the recently deceased. And his neighbors loved him for it. He wasn't shunned by them for cavorting with spirits or working with the devil. He performed a necessary service and was beloved for it. Sin-eating as a practice started to die out in the mid-19th century, but carried on in some of the smaller towns. The locals found it an important part of the grieving process. Richard Munslow, though, did not die out until the 19th century. Some believe that he continued the practice out of respect for his deceased children, who had passed away of scarlet fever when they were very young. Munslow lived until 1906, becoming the last living sin-eater in England, The village of Rattling Hope erected a memorial for their hometown hero, which had fallen into disrepair over the years. In 2010, the town got together to restore it to its former glory, a lasting homage to the man who sacrificed his mortal soul for his friends and neighbors. And while they had no qualms about bringing Munslow's gravesite back from the dead, they apparently drew the line at resurrecting his occupation. Some leftovers, it seems, just aren't worth saving. Thank you.